Well, it looks like we're live, and that's what it's telling me that we're live. And so, welcome to Journey of an Esthete podcast. Um, Funky Friday at five, part six of my now long running 70s cinema and visual culture series. Um, today is a little different than some of the other episodes I've done because we're I'm restricting um, my discussion to three filmmakers in three films. Um, and it gets a little bit outside of my ordinary um, formulation, um, by which I mean, uh, you know, all three films today that I'm going to talk about are deeply 70s. At one and the same time, of course, they 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 um, transcend such such uh, classification and uh, in, in profound ways. Now, um, I wasn't quite sure how to proceed today. I had a lot of um, I don't know if the phrase is self doubt, but a lot of uncertainty about how to approach um, these films. And I had, had actually debated internally of breaking this episode up into more than one episode. And so just dealing with just one film today, perhaps, or two. And I'm going to kind of leave it up to, um, you know, kind of the, this, this, this spirit of the, of the moment and, and pr to proceed. But I want to do some talking and do some viewing because these are long films. The Chick Strand film is uh, 59 minutes, about an hour. It's not quite as long as the others. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about our first, um, it's a masterpiece, um, Fred, Frederick Wiseman's Welfare from 1975. Now, Fred Wiseman, he's made so many movies. And so it's interesting to think about my introduction to him and my experience of him over the decades. Um, I do, I think so. The, the film in survey, in surveys of Fred Wiseman, they always talk about Titty Cut Follies, Titty Cut. That's the film that's always mentioned. It's his first film. It was a muckraking film. It exposed uh, corruption and abuse inside a, uh, a state facility, and in, in, I think in Massachusetts. And um, that film has haunted him and documentary filmmaking for, it came out in the 60s, so a long time. Um, unfortunately, that um, film tends to overshadow these incredible films that he's made over the past decades. Um, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna off the top of my head talk about some of my favorites. Um, his first high school is remarkable, which is a, a portrait of a negative high school, more of a pejorative portrait in a sense. Although in Wiseman, Wiseman never in his films really leads the audience or the viewer into what to think. And he, he goes very, he goes further than any other filmmaker, documentary or fiction and allowing a kind of, um, I would say democratic um, deliberativeness on the part of the viewer. Um, and he goes so far in that respect that in a sense, he's a poet. And he uses the sort of the raw material of life, actual people, actual working conditions, actual institutions. And in, in his own words, he tries to make a novel or a poem out of them. And moreover, doesn't really, I mean, he has opinions and his films uh, have points of view, 
but the opinions and points of view don't lead. So I just mentioned high school one. He also made a high school two about a more in the nineties, I think about a more progressive high school that, you know, that he liked him. His portrait of uh, Mayor Walsh of Boston and city hall from a few years ago is remarkable. Um, National portrait gallery. I mean, he, so what Wiseman does is he does films about, I don't know, institutions is what they call it. So he'll do a film about a prison. He'll do a film about a ballet company, a film about a library. He did the National Portrait Gallery. He did um, uh, some of his more recent films. He did he did a film about a ballet company. And I, all, he also did a film about one of my favorite places in Paris, Crazy Horse, which is an erotic dance um, uh, place. And he also does, you know, he's done a couple of fiction films, actually. He has a new one out now, I think, about Tolstoy and, and Tolstoy's wife, I think, if I'm not mistaken. I think that just came out or has been out. Um, and then he made another film of somebody reading a letter, a personal film. And those are sort of um, his forays into fiction. But, I, you know, there's a lot I could say about Wiseman. I don't really feel like I can do him justice because an artist operating on Wiseman's level and with Wiseman's integrity is um, he, he's well in the case of Wiseman he's making movies that are so dense they're dense with psychological information they're dense with sociological information and sort of a gonna do a before we show some examples of from welfare I'm gonna do a little summary if I can what Wiseman does is he goes to a place, like let's say he's going to do a film about, well, he did a film called At Berkeley about Berkeley University in California. That's a, one of the newer ones, which is, of course, three hours of, you know. So what he does is he focuses uh, his camera on interactions among and between the people and their environment. What he never does, and it's a hallmark of his style that he doesn't do this, is ever have anybody address the camera, that is us, and he never has any kind of voiceover, and I think almost never music. I think, I mean, there may be some, there may, you know, again, it's, it's. I've seen all of his films, by the way, and I've seen, my favorites I've seen more than once, Domestic Violence from 2001, which is about, is in Tampa, Florida, and that's in two parts. There's a three-hour part, which is just therapy sessions, of these women in this in this place, and then there's another three-hour part, which is cops going on calls, domestic calls, house to house. It, it would be interesting to to talk about that part of domestic violence in light of some of the more, shall I say, irresponsible um, types of documentary work, like cops, for example. It'd be interesting to compare compare what what Wiseman does and what they do. Any, any event, um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about him. And, and he, uh, he describes himself as trying to do what a novelist does or a poet, poet does, except not using actors, using actual people. And his films have almost no exposition. So there's no explanation. And, he, and actually he himself does a minimal amount of research and so he's of the, he's of a, and, and I actually think, and I don't know if he would describe it this way. I think it's kind of a philosophic, philosophical, spiritual position that he has in his practice over the many, many, many years. And it's actually, you'll see it now. It, the result on film 
is that he doesn't want to have, he wants to have as few preconceptions, categories in his head as possible. And he wants to honor the souls of the people he's filming, quite literally. And he takes that very seriously, as you'll see. Um, and he wants to, he wants to, and this, and, th and this actually connects Wiseman's work to other kinds of films, actually, and filmmakers. So I see in him Cassavetes, actually. I see a lot of Warhol, too, believe it or not. Andy Warhol. I mean, these are all, I mean, Fred Wiseman himself loves fiction film film and, and is a fan of, 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 of comedies and, and he goes to see mainstream. He's very knowledgeable. One of his favorite films is Paths of Glory by Kubrick. Um, you know, he, uh, he loves Jim Jarmusch. His favorite film is Down by Law. Mine is Stranger Than Paradise. And a lot of people like both. But in any event, um, we're going to get into welfare. And I'm going, to, I'm going to proceed because I want to be respectful to the film, but also I wanted to give kind of breadth of his vision because he has a vision of what to do with the camera. And so I'm going to show the very opening. And he does something sort of like an establishing shot. He shows faces. you know, a few seconds with each face. By the way, there's no payoff. So a lot of the film, a lot of the people he photographs, there's never a narrative payoff. You may not see them later. It's a textural, textural thing just to kind of introduce this welfare office in 1975 in New York City. And then I'm going to cut to, I'm going to have, I'm going to have to do a little tech work and, and change the disc because we're going to show the largest portion of the film, which is part two. And I'm going to try to start off with a com communication between two welfare workers or staff people talking to each other about their lives or business and then their interaction with some extremely difficult scenarios that unfold in, in, in real durational time with welfare recipients and different people. Um, but, you know, this idea of uh, capturing the soul is, is something that, you know, might sound a little pretentious, but uh, there are a handful of filmmakers that do that, um, not just in documentary, of course, but in fiction. Um, and, they're, and they're interested in that. And, and Fred Wiseman is among them. So we're going to talk about the two other folks. We got Chick Strand and we got um, Robert Kramer. Hopefully we'll get to all both those today. Um, but let's just try to try to get some tech stuff here. See what's going on. Okay. There we go. Okay. That's it. Just have a seat. Okay, just have a seat. Okay, have a seat. Okay, have a seat. Okay, sir, just have a seat. Okay. Have a seat. Have a seat. Okay, just have a seat, please. Okay, have a seat. Mr. Wells, would you mind removing your hat, please? Okay, fine. Okay, have a seat, please. Three A. 
So that's a pretty good, um, that's a pretty good, um, immersive, um, that's a pretty good leap into the, um, universe, uh, Frederick Wiseman. Um, it's fairly, uh, fairly good, good way to start, uh, the opening of welfare. Um, it's very common in his films when he, again, as you saw there, oftentimes characters in his films of all types, in other words, not just people um, who are disadvantaged or who are in poverty or people who were native uh, uh, discussing his situation there, but, you know, school teachers and nurses and bank presidents even and ballet choreographers and all the people that have been in his films. It's very common that they have sort of rants and he lets the camera, they just start talking. And, and they often, um, it's, it's actually been a source of much uh, interesting discussion in literature on Wiseman, of which is too, too little, I think. But when it's discussed, I think, uh, you know, people don't know quite what to make of it because Wiseman is so indulgent often of the speakers. Um, and, there's, and it's very... Um, it's often unclear ethically a little bit in the sense of not, not, not that the film's unclear, but what I mean, it's the point I made earlier that Wiseman very much likes to have we viewing these people be in a little bit of a place of indecision. Um, so he'll often have, you know, 
you know, very difficult tense situations. And, and also because he minimizes um, exposition. I mean, there's exposition, the things unfold and he shapes his films and he edits very much. The scenes themselves are quite long. In other words, the discussions between people are quite lengthy, quite immersive, quite durational would be the word, right? Um, but when he goes from scene to scene, there's incredible precision in his editing. Um, and, you know, that's important too. And so I'm going to go to part two and try to, try to, try to uh, get a uh, more of an even more in-depth um, he has this on, on two discs. I really appreciate the fact that his company is selling these films. I think he has most of his films for sale. So I have to get the right moment because I have to get the right moment when the two men are talking. I'm trying to, because I want to, I want to show cinematically the transition from staff to the people they're serving or clients or whatever the term would be, right? And the, the fluidity of the way the, and also the way the film, again, it's that, it's that sense of the drama's playing out in our minds. Okay. There's drama, but it's playing out in our minds. Okay. So we kind of, but I have to do some maneuvering here. Bear with me, because I'm trying to find a, It's interesting also to watch his films in fast in, um, like this because you can see see what he does here compositionally. Um, he he's interested in. I mean, I, I'm not going to play the whole film. I mean, I, it would be not, I mean, you should watch it. But he, he's interested in, as I said before, interactions between and among his subjects. Um, he's not interested so much in primarily in our relationship, in, in a sense of intimacy with the subjects it's them and so it's an interesting it's an interesting case of um i mean there's a theory about film um that film is basically as an art form is um seeing the world as if we were not present right so that our presence you know is kind of um not acknowledged in a way um i mean that's one idea about what film films many things and i don't although i think in part Partly, at least in terms of mainstream filmmaking, that's of course very true. Um, and I think Frederick Wiseman utilizes that um, fact about um, you want to call it voyeurism, if you want, if you will, or you want to call it. Um, he hates the word observation. That's that's the that's the, that's his. He's always railing about me. People stop calling me an observational filmmaker. Because I think it minimizes in his work the enormous amount of, in the editing room, hours upon hours of construction, of taking, you know, he goes to the institution, he probably filmed this welfare office for maybe a month or something, I don't know, and thousands of hours, and he has to, he has to 
sculpt a kind of a thing out of it. Um, Well, I might as well just show. This is not what I wanted to. Um... Uh, again, I'll just show. Ask about your employment background and see if they've got anything that looks good. It's very important to get the phone number of that person because uh, just in case, let's say you're unable to keep an appointment or something, uh, they right away start telling you to close the case. You know, and this is this is one of the problems that you might have. So in general, I'm also going to give you my phone number because I'm going to have your case here. So that, I mean, if some complication comes up, right away call uh, so that you won't, you know, there won't be any misunderstanding because it's much easier to, you know, settle things out before they happen. This is a great monologue here. And uh, I don't like it. Uh, who, got, who, who has the best job? Well, you take Zanoni, she's frozen in. Nothing, no one can touch her. You take uh, this woman here, she, she's uh, pleading hardship. You take Mr. Morris, he's pleading union delegate. He can't be moved. She's a union delegate. Right, so I'm saying, and they pull super seniority. So by the time they finish, I have no seniority at all. Because everybody else is when you take Sustiel, who should have been out of here, and she's pleading hardship. Well, it's, it's, it's more hardship for me. I have to come from New Jersey. What are you talking about? I get up at 5, 5.30 every morning and spend a lot of money. I spend more money to get to this job than anybody else on staff. You wouldn't believe it, the money I spend to get to this job. That's right. Whether I come by a train, whether I come by my personal car or what, it's very expensive to come from New Jersey. You know, at one time, the department didn't... Uh... Uh, have and anybody on the staff who live out of state? You know that. Don't give me about out of state. I've been on the. When I first came to the department, I lived in New York. Not only did I live in New York, I was a homeowner in New York, having a house 60 by 100 at 114 49th Street, St. Albans. Very well, a very wealthy section. Right? Now, I own property in New York. I'm entitled to work in New York and live there for many, many years. I know that. The I reason know. I went to New York, to Newark, was because my stepfather died. I left my mother all alone in a house. So I went to live with her. When she died, she gave me the house came to me by inheritance. What am I going to do? Throw the house in the street? Right? Well, if you don't have any agreements, why don't you discuss it with, with Stanley? You discuss with Stanley, he has his favorites, just like before. I should have gotten the. Uh, I should have been the supervisor of general service because I had the seniority, I had the training, I've had the courses, I've been to Fordham, I've had casework one, casework two, 
personality behavior one, personality behavior two, administration, and juvenile delinquency. Now that fits me for something. I haven't been just sitting on my rear, not keeping abreast of the times. I've always kept up. And I think I deserve better than, a, than the kind of fair shuffle that I've been getting here in this welfare department. Because this man is a czar, and he's going to put in who he wants to put in. That's all. You have you have a, why are you, you taking it out on me? And that's why I've resorted to CO, because I figured they must have some kind of job down there, even if it's no more than interviewing people for maybe uh, jobs in the department or whatnot, because I can do interviewing and whatnot. Are you forgetting about this memo? If Mr. Sodman wants to speak to me, uh, you know, you can tell him that this came through and that Ms. Hightower would like to see him in reference to this memo before I, before I have to resort to grievance machinery. We want to get this uh, moment of this. Because uh, he was going to legal aid or MFY, one or the other. So if they, if they, you should get a call. The big question is, who is he? <laughs> assistance How many names? Three different names. We don't know. And each each one used the other as a uh, the landlord in the particular case. So if he's being evicted, who is evicting who? I spoke to the arresting officer. He's evicting himself. He had him arrested the other day. Yeah. He had a, a record a mile long. And yeah, he had a big record. Big record. Yeah. Well, he doesn't fear getting busted. He doesn't fear getting busted. No. All these guys. It's just a normal routine of things. They're not excited about it. He's not excited about it. No. It doesn't bother them. They're accustomed to it. Anyway, I'm only letting you know this. In case they, they, you should get a call. But the big problem is who is who. We don't know who the man is. We don't know that he. Uh... Well, I called out Jack Williams, and he answered to Jack Williams. All right. Now it's Curtis Rasa. There's another guy, Jack Kiger. <laughs> well, this is why I put in each record. Besides, we don't have the record. This... No, I called out Jack. Uh, Jack. He answered. You know, he came. He came well, over. Anyway, this attorney has all the records anyway. So the, the, we take no action until this is disposed of by the well, court. How stupid can he be to come in today? Over here, he knows that the, the, they have chutzpah to the end. He knows you locked them up, and he still came in against us. That's amazing. What's he got to lose? Was he afraid of too late for this? And she told me to come back. We made you to get me for tomorrow, maybe. It was too late for him to open up stairs or close to Okay. 
I wanted to have a big chunk of, of the film um, for you to um, experience um, his conversation, the woman's asking you know, problems with her work, telling her situation in New York, and then the two men cadets and and then um, I'm just trying. I'm trying to figure out what. There's a really tense moment. It, it's actually the. Um, there's many tense moments, but this is the this is the one that's the most um, maybe climatic. That, that um, I'm trying to. Um, no. <clears throat> Yeah, here's a, here's a... All right, in, I'm trying to find out the figure that they I They won't get. pay this rent. See, in the event that you were to find an apartment for $150... Okay. Now, all I care about is if I had 150 instead of 175 you're telling me they would pay it. Right, okay, let's assume it was 150 All right. Now, because they won't consider, they won't put a maximum limit on that and say, ah, this is, you know, we will treat this as 150 and the rest she has to they make up. do that, that's right. Well, then, um... What am I? I'm supposed to relocate. That's correct. This isn't mine. Uh, that's insane. All right. Yeah, that's it may. That's okay. That's I want to find out how I get that maximum allotment for $150. You would have to live in an apartment for $150. They will not allow you to live in an apartment for more. I don't I will only pay partial. That's not legal. That's, you know, this is the city law, actually state law, that they allow only a certain amount per person. How do you contest it? You will find for a fair hearing. So your beef is not with me. The beef is with the law. Now the law that I'm citing you, that I'm telling you, is that the fair, uh, the rent allotment for one person may not exceed. $150. This is state law, and this is what your beef is. You wish to either question my... I wish to get that 150 period. Then you would have to go and, you know, that's what it is. Uh, you're Your contention is you're entitled to that. You're willing to make up the difference. And what I'm contending is that it's not, you know, they're not going to go for that. You can ask them. That's what they're there for. Okay? <laughs> well, it just seems if you work and if your rent is over a certain amount, you have the problem. This is the Hartland Law, established in 1937 in a thing but old charity. What? Tab Hartland Law from on the welfare center. Thank you. Thanks a lot. It has to be the sixth. Okay. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. What about what I can do for today? Today. Well, I don't know. Twenty-six. So those are some moments from welfare. Um, 
you know, there's again, there's that really dramatic scene. There's an explosion, and, and um, there's two caseworkers, and they they have a have a have a quarrel, a verbal fight with the uh, um, some of the people, and it's it's quite a scene. I, I wasn't I wasn't sure if I wanted to play that in its entirety, um, although it is it is very dramatic. Um, I think I might play the very ending of the film, which is sort of another monologue. One of the characters uh, talks about his life, and he. Um, I think I might I might close with that, but you know, again, it's always issues. Because you gotta get me a place to live. Because she's pregnant, means she automatically. What is your appointment for manpower to get a physical exam? One yet of next month. From here, from here to then. When did you lose your job? About three days, two days ago. She told me she didn't want to use. Sally, you're gonna have to go back to Waverly Welfare Um, I'm just thinking about um, his decision making as a filmmaker. Um, to show those corridors, and so so when someone will speak to somebody else, the camera will capture not only that, but also capture associative. Things around the main, the main focus, if that makes any sense. And there's an associative quality, but it's not. Um, again, and so associations and other other kinds of films, other filmmakers, are kind of mapped out in a way to make a certain collection of points. I think, um, and so he doesn't do that. He makes other kinds of points. So he's interested in, again, the relationship between the people in these places. And he wants us, after all, we are watching his film. He wants us to experience that. But he does what he doesn't want or do is have that which we experience that's filmed communicate directly with us in the form of an interview, for example. Um, and, it, and, you know, really, really, in, in no way is it about right or wrong. These are different styles. I mean, one style is predominant. I mean, the, the, the style of a kind of a collage-like presentation of a story with um, constant music, constant narration, constant talking to the camera, various people talking to the camera. So there's emotional bond is made with the viewer. That's almost every documentary that's made. And so it's almost like, you know, Wiseman created this totally unique film, film style 
And very few, if any, people picked up on it. And I think it's kind of interesting. Part of the reason might be very... So, you know, if I'm watching a Liz Garbus film, and Liz Garbus is a, is a terrific filmmaker, and I was tempted to play, for contrast, one of her films, um, maybe part of the maybe part of the vow or who care who killed Garrett um, one of her true crime pictures just to kind of show not just not just for the contrast but also um, it occurs to me that you know in a Liz Garbus film that she might make for HBO there's enormous visual interest so there's a lot of visual it's broken up in the way that a room is supposed to be interesting you know like an interior decorators talk about interior space having to have visual interests that you don't get supposedly bored I put that in quotes scare quotes and it's almost like the, the, the these films are designed to sort of break up things so you'll have a testimonial and you'll have a you know um, after a testimonial you'll have a have a shots of an actual place a lot of archival footage of the past of people of the past and things from the past and it's sort of assembled together and if you think about it, that gives an art director and filmmakers a lot to do. And from that point of view or their point of view, Wiseman's project might appear, shall we say, I'm going to be, be kind about it, maybe a little minimal, maybe, some would say. But then again, from Wiseman's point of view, he feels that there's something happening with these human beings, and he does not want to interrupt that. He wants it to play out. Durationally, and these are all, you know, the whole history of all the arts and film, just part of it, is a history of these different um, convictions, actually, about how to make a film, about what a film should do, how a film should represent people or not represent people, and what the purpose of it all is. And, and, and you know, just as there's, you know, different kinds of people in the world, there's going to be different kinds of films. And, um, What's what's rare though is somebody who's really unique. You can put on a Fred Wiseman movie, any movie, if I haven't seen one of them, and I probably could tell you it was his film in like ten minutes. So he has his own style, which is not everybody has. So I'm gonna um, figure out what I'm gonna do here. I think I'm gonna. I didn't know really how to proceed with milestones. I didn't. Because milestones is sort of this epic, um, oh, epic novelistic movie about the 60s new left or radical 60s people. The aftermath of that and trying to make a life for themselves. It's got Grace Paley in her own, only acting performance, the writer Grace Paley in it, playing a filmmaker. And, and it's, a, it's a long, thorny movie. And it's... Um, has things of communes in it and activism and, and archival. And Robert Kramer developed his own style, which often has a very deeply human and humane interactive quality between his figures and his subjects. But what Kramer does is Kramer's political and he's, and he's polemical and he's, it's like he's trying to put everything into this film. In fact, there's an interview where he said, I want to put all my feelings um, my hatred of capitalism or my love for, I don't know, uh, revolutionary movements around the world. Um, uh, and, and, and 
et cetera, et cetera. And you want to put all those feelings in the film. And so I'm going to, an interesting, interesting um, show a little bit of the opening. Um, his film, so his film, there's this uh, political thing of these ex-radicals. They're still radicals. They're not ex-radicals. They're, they're ex, they're not in the sixties anymore. They're stuck in the middle of the seventies, which is not always to their liking, trying to make their own a life for themselves. And I should say my politics are quite different from the people in this film um, in at least a couple of respects. So one respect is that I'm not, never have been pro Ho Chi Minh in North Vietnam. I mean, I'm not. And I, you know, they, they, they you know, what well, actually is quite common in the 60s and 70s for radicals to take the opposite, you know, take the, um, the other side's side, you know, the North Vietnamese, the anti-American, and of course, uh, you know, Jane Fonda and Donald Sutherland did that. Um, I think that Fuck the Army Project, I think is what it was called, um, which was a sort of comedic little series of films they did in, so, and then Steel Yard Blues and there's that whole thing. So this is sort of um, connected to that. And so in the film, you'll be watching the film and it'll proceed like a narrative film of people talking and there'll be this interruption of a, of a love poem by Ho Chang Minh and a picture of Ho Chang Minh. And there's a kind of a, there's native activists talking about um, trying to create a, a first people's nation and revolt. And they'll talk about, and those people do acupuncture and sort of it's like a, you know, it's, it's like almost four hours long. And, and, you know, I, I, you know, I have some sympathies with the people in this movie, but, but, but they are far more radical than am I. And, and we, we, we might reach different conclusions about what to support or not. Um, but I have enormous, I first saw this film in the year 2000, I think, or 99, quite late, because these films were not really that accessible, really. Accessibility is a thing, you know? So, and I don't, you know, I don't know quite how to proceed, except there's a little secret to milestones. And the secret is this. So the main character gets out of prison. He's a political prisoner, probably, you know, sort of almost like a little bit like the weather underground, maybe a little bit more benign than the, than the weather underground, perhaps. Or maybe he was, you know, maybe he was in prison for supporting North Vietnam. I don't know, really. It's unclear. And he's out of prison. He's talking to his fellow politicos, you know. And there's a scene where he goes into his old apartment room and he has all these books and he's, he's trying to gather stuff from his belongings. And the only belonging he wants is this. Out of all the hundreds of books is I want this. And the film doesn't zoom in on it, actually. It's interesting. Robert Kramer is very subtle. But there's a little, I'm actually kind of ruining the film in a way. This is all spoilers. Because I'm actually going to show what Kramer does with this incredible, one of the great, Suzuki Roshi, one of the great um, works of spiritual literature and education in the whole of the 20th century here, this. Um, how it relates to his vision. And it's very different, of course, than the Marxist, Leninist, anarchist slash secular revolutionary part of the film. So it's interesting. And, um, and I kind of trying to, trying to, so bear with me here is some tech, tech, uh, always tech issues, of course, because we're, um, but I wanted to sort of give you a taste of 
Um, a taste of uh, a taste of cherry. No, a taste of um, taste of honey. Um, here we go. Out of prison. I hope this is. Here we go. This is the So glad that you're out. We thought that you, you, well, you remember the, the dinners that we used to have? Well, we thought maybe we'd have one tonight. Everybody come over to my house and we have a dinner. We'll see. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think I have to go very slow. I mean, I'm glad you came, but I don't know if I can see a lot of other people right away. Yeah. Even friends, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Maybe you're going to feel different tonight, you know, when you feel all this around you. You probably want to split, don't you? Yeah, let's get out of here. But it's something I've been thinking about a lot. About whether you feel resentful towards me or towards the rest of us because you were the one at the time. I don't know. I feel good about what we did. I mean, we all helped a lot of deserters get out of the country. They were good people. I like them. So I think I'm that's... That I'm sorry, I didn't mean to... And I liked them a lot, too. But... I just want to interject some, some uh, historical political information. So that I think it's the a reference to the Vietnam Resisters League, 
the War of Resistance League, which is a whole um, incredible, incredible, incredible movement of that time, and very involved. Of, 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 and so that again, I was misremembering because there's many people in the film, and there's many, but that's and actually people were in, you know. Activists involved that were arrested on on mass because it's um you know because of that of course the time and of course interesting I didn't know I was gonna I didn't also didn't know I was going to show the Ho Chi Minh poem but you could see that in Kramer's universe he's showing the people we just met in the car that's the fictional characters but constantly throughout the film he's always editing back and forth shots of slave rebellions and and drawings of John Brown. And, Photos of the Vietnamese villages constantly, constantly, constantly. Always an association with, you know, this film. He's saying this film is our movement. This is our politics. It's very upfront. It's actually kind of remarkable because it's actually quite rare, I think. And um, for a filmmaker to be so, I guess it's sincerity and authentic about his life and what he's done with it. In his politics, it's like this. And it, it's almost, um, if I turn off the part of my self that um, is interested in whether it's right or wrong, per se, but interested in kind of commitment. And of course, from their point of view, they're trying to fight, you know, against this awful war. Um, and that's, uh, of course, a, a major theme of, a theme of, the, of the time. But this film tries to cover everything. And so I just wanted to, inter I didn't mean to interrupt, I just want to give kind of a context. And I want to get to the scene where he's picking up this book because I, I was, Suzuki Roshi, you know, he, he goes to prison, he discovers Suzuki, you know? I got, I love it. And I think if it had been me, instead of having a baby, I had gone to jail and I had sat there and been alone and watched, watched my friends drift away and watch the whole context that we did it in just melt away. I think I would feel really pissy about it right now. I just want you to feel like it's okay. You know, that at least I understand if, you, if that's how you feel. I did feel angry. They all seemed to feel guilty that I was in and they were out. They didn't come to see me because they were embarrassed because they didn't know what to say. I don't know if there's any way for you to feel it right now, feel it coming from me, but there's a whole lot of love that keeps us together. The whole time that you were in jail, things were falling apart on the outside too. And we didn't have any organizations left, but there was something that held us together, you know, that had brought us together in the first place and it held us together. I just hope that tonight you can feel it you can feel the love that's between us. Constant association. See, I, I love, so Nicholas Rogue does that in his films, very different, totally different kind of filmmaker, but shares that stylistic concern with Robert Kramer. So instead of, 
it's not exactly flashback or flash forward. So, you know, the cuts the, 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 that he has throughout is kind of a, um, I would say more of a spiritual associative connection. It's not literal and it's kind of almost, it's almost, it's, it's poetry. And, you know, this film does it constantly. And, and Nicholas Rogue's work is that way too. So in, in Man That Fell to Earth, uh, David Boeing remembers the planet he comes from. You know, he's this alien on Earth and he's stuck here and it's complicated. And it's one of the greatest movies ever made, Man That Fell to Earth. Just beautiful. And it's like a dream, you know. I mean, not that the film's like a dream, but it's like a, a dream you would have, right? And um, although it's a dream too. Um, and it's constant association, cutting, cutting, cutting. And it's not, the cutting is swift and it's um, quick and rogue. But it's not, um, it has purpose and has meaning. And it's sort of, some, some think it's the way many people, what goes on inside of us internally, because there's a kind of a dreamlike sort of connection between all things. And of course, he's doing this in film. We'll show a guy get out of prison and it'll cut to Vietnam. Or it'll cut to something else. And there's a birth scene in this film. And in the middle of this birth scene, and it's, it's very explicit, one of the most graphic uh, representations of birth ever in any movie. Uh, he's cutting associatively to a grandmother or to, I think it's um, the grandmother of one of the people, the woman giving birth maybe, or the, it takes a village. There's a village around this, this woman in this house, literally giving birth. And so again, association. So I just wanted to talk about that, that, that that's always going on here. And I think it's, it's a way to make a film, you know, it's, it's, um, and, you know, some today would use the term nonlinear to describe this, I think. Um, but that presupposes, again, it's not, um, you're not being given information to register and record for a plot. That's the difference. So in Rogue and Robert Kramer, in a lot of 70s films, it's the association itself for its own sake. So it's not really a payoff. Um, is an other kind of payoff, I, I would say, though, than, than the usual kind. Still. In fact, the last time that you saw me, I was still pregnant. You know, the, I've been so lucky you've grown up with Hopi, and you've been in jail that whole time. I'm sorry it had to happen. I mean, uh, you've been away for so long and everything to come back to this. Listen, I know this is hard for you to take, but um, you're putting up pretty well for well the circumstances. You know, um, things have been much worse for other people in the building. For instance, just this week, Bob and Natalie came back. You know, the family downstairs is yeah. middle-aged, yeah. they have two kids. Yeah. And what had happened was a fire up there on that apartment. And the fire department just drenched it in water. So the new techniques they had for putting out the fire. There's a lot of stuff missing, but I think the important thing is that there's a danger of fire tonight, and I'm worried, you know, even if you get a place to stay tonight, I'll give you some of my boxes, you get some of the valuables, yeah. I already put some of my stuff in the locker room, man. You can take some of your stuff over. Would you borrow the truck, maybe? I have a car. I'm used to the car tonight. We can, we can borrow a car. Take some of the stuff over. But it's important. You want me to leave now? Look at what you have here. It's okay. Why 
help you load some stuff up. I can this afternoon. Thanks. Okay, he finds the book. Here we go. You're going to leave all the stuff here? He's going to show this book. The same. Look at this. What about the series See? coat? It's all yours. Come on, you got it. You want this, don't you? No, really. Really? Sure. Really? Sure. Anything you want. What about the books? Paper. Paper. It must be in shape. No. Nope. Sorry, listen, ISOs. They give you three now. It's important that I get back to my apartment. Lenny, this is terrific. See the open theater poster, Judith Bowman. I'll take care of you tonight. Anything you want to do, you can leave in my place. Lenny, thanks. Okay, if you have any more boxes, just let me know. Try to fix some stuff. There it is. Yeah, thanks. What about the scarf? Afternoon's time, 8.49. We're talking today to Jan Phillips outside the Dawson Law School. Jan was or has recently finished. Yeah, I'd love to play all of this, then talking about their activism and their thing. But, you know, I can't. But I just wanted to. Um, There's no jobs for, there's no education places or housing for. And you know, you can pick up a kid on the street and notice the intimacy of their access to representation. Yeah, that. Now you rehabilitated them. Prison only trains people to be able to live in prison. Moreover, it's even harder to get a start out in free society after you've been released from prison because then you have labels as well as all your other problems of being a Thank you very much. Yeah, there it goes. Back to Marv Pritchard. More association. Foot political footage. I don't think the center of my beliefs has changed. But I think I have to live with them differently. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I can explain it yet. Um, it's just like I have to act when I feel it's necessary for me to, when there are no other alternatives, when I can see the way clearly. I don't want to act anymore out of... Um, guilt or habit or because I learned I ought to. I'm not, I'm not sure I understand exactly what you're saying. What I feel mostly is that there are these things that have to be done and we have to do them. Um, I feel I have to work toward what I believe in. It's, it's a real pressure that I feel constantly. I don't know, for myself, I feel I have to with each situation as it comes up. Probably what I'm thinking is that I get worried sometimes. John's spoken a lot about you, and I know what you've done, and I know what you've been through, and I really admire it. But now it appears that you're not into that anymore. So I'm going to travel through this film a little bit more than I had prepared. This is a blind artist, Potter. What is it? 
So you got to meet the bearded, hippie-ish looking potter who's blind. About this is about at the two hour mark. Robert Kramer puts in this scene. This is you don't know. And understand this is 1974. No explanation, but he's revealing information about these, these this man. Was nature a wilderness, and only to him was the land infested with wild animals and savage people. To us it was tame. Earth was bountiful, and we were surrounded with the blessings of the great mystery. Not until the hairy man from the east came, and with brutal frenzy heaped injustices upon us and the family we loved, was it wild for us. When the very animals of the forest began fleeing from his approach, then it was that for us the Wild West began. That was by Chief Luther Standing Bear of the Oglala Band of Sioux. They were they were people wounded me. Mm. There's a the picture that goes with this is this really beautiful picture of a vast vast plain like I've never seen. It. With um, with sort of a cluster of teepees, it looks like almost like a field of mushrooms. It's really fine. Is, it, is that like a village? No, or it says encampment. I guess it's something like a, a a coming together of the tribes for a ceremony or something. That must be. Uh, must, be playing. must be Bobby, I guess. He plays on into the night. Bucko White. Well, it's really neat that you're reading. Well, 
That's the last one for tonight. I'm gone. What happens to the the day? Yeah. I really can shake. Isn't that remarkable? Um, they're reading in bed together. They're a couple, um, and they're reading about the wounded knee. About it's, it's um, uh, again, it's this epic. He's trying to stuff everything about that era into one film, and um, I'm going to take a little break here and read from Suzuki Roshi because you'll see it connects to the film. Um, so I'm going to do a little reading here. Uh, Got to find my book first. We're done. This is a. This is a one. Uh, this is in my beginner's mind. Of course, I talk about it too much, probably. I discovered this book when I was thirteen, and it stayed with me and been a part of my life ever since. And in two thousand, I saw this weird movie I'm showing you now that. This this book is the foundation of this film, actually. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain. There's a famous passage in this these talks that Suzuki Roshi did where he talks about what, well, all throughout the book, he's talking about what is life, what life is. And he compares life to a waterfall. Um, here we go. This is the passage. And I'll try to do it justice. I'm not... I'm sure Suzuki delivered this in 1972 at the San Francisco Zen Center, I think, or Mill Valley, I think. I'm not an expert, but I'll try to do my best. I went to Yosemite National Park and I saw some huge waterfalls. The highest one there is, 1,340 feet high. And from it, the water comes down like a curtain thrown from the top of the mountain. So the water comes down like a curtain being thrown from the top of it, compares it to a curtain, like drapes, you know, coming down from the top. It does not seem to come down swiftly, as you might expect. It seems to come down very slowly because of the distance. And the water does not come down as one stream, but is actually separated into many, many tiny streams. From a distance, it looks like a curtain. And I thought it must be very difficult experience 
for each drop of water to come down from the top of such a high mountain. It takes time, you know, a long time for the water finally to reach the bottom of the waterfall. And it seems to me, it seems to me that our human life may be like this. We have many difficult experiences in our life. We have many difficult experiences, but at the same time, I thought the water was not originally separated. But was like one whole river. Only when it is separated does it have some difficulty in falling. It is as if water does not have any feeling when it is one whole river. So it's, it's oh, well, I was talking about... Um, the, the, the emergence of feelings and, and, you know, individuality and all these things that the thing I love the most also is the thing that causes our problems, you know, so I'm going to get out my glasses here and see, ah, better age. Um, So when we see one whole river, we do not feel the living activity of the water. But when we dip a part of the water into a dipper, we experience some feeling of the water. And we also feel the value of the person who uses the water. Feeling ourselves and the water in this way, we cannot use it in just a material way. It is a living thing. I mean, this is a lot, it goes on, but I just, it's important because just like Robert Kramer surprised us with the information about his characters in that bedroom scene in, in long into the film, hours into the film, um, he has a surprise for the viewer after the film, indeed after the credits. And so I'm gonna play that now. I wasn't going to play the birth scene, you know, I don't know, it's, uh... Mm. Oh, they're really whizzing along, Susan. Ain't no stopping them now. Here we go. I'm just going to sit here in front of it like this or next to it. Um, uh, because I scenes, you know, and trying to get scenes and trying to get, trying to get, um, excuse me. There's no way to do it. I don't think non-visually, you know, you know, you get, it's got to, Ah, this is what I'm talking about. Hold on. Oh, uh, and so and so too. Give this to the baby, and uh, it'll be all right. 
Is that where the brain is? Well, the brain is buried in there. In there someplace. But when I massage here, yes. I'm massaging the last point on one of the energy pathways uh -huh. that controls the internal heating. Oh. When uh, I talked to you last time, yeah. and I said that Harriet would come, yeah. it's really special for me. Yeah. But for me, that we're here all at the same time, it's really something special. Yeah. Just, just let your hands be comfortable. Just relax. You know, the construction and everything. And what? That's one of Kramer's uh, associ associations, associate uh, uh, things, memory in them. Um, in the midst of this birth, um, um, Doing a disservice to his film, fast forwarding through all this, but um, it's the only way I can. Here we go. Number Tungui, Hong Kong, me. I was an F4D pilot. No. More Vietnam footage. Um. Grace Paley working on her film, the character working on her film about Vietnam, a baby, the baby's born. Um. Now we have a credit sequence. This is at this part. This classic 70s credit sequence, the, the, font, the fonts and the, some of the people uh, worked on this film or became very famous later, some of them, I think. I don't know. But I just wanted to... You hear the sound of the waterfall?
After the credits, this is what he gives us. The waterfall from this book. And I'm sure many people that saw the film didn't know anything about this book or that talk. Um, wow. Um, again, my apologies for rushing through that birth scene. It's a very, you know, I'm, try I'm trying to, um, you know, hit certain points in the film to demonstrate certain things about the film. And, you know, you got to deal with what you got, um, tech that I have. And I read that excerpt from Suzuki perhaps a little too slowly. Um, but Suzuki Roshi spoke. There's a lot of footage on YouTube of his talks. And there's a documentary, uh, many documentaries, actually. I'm reading the biography of him called Crooked Cucumber. Because on my Thomas More episode, Thomas More told me to get that book. And so that's the book. And so I'm finally reading Crooked Cucumber after many years of it had been published, written. I think it came out in 1998. So, um, but I feel like I'm reading it. I feel like it was written this morning in a way for me, you know. Um, and it makes me really happy to, to share this book again through this film. Um, it is now 618. Do we want to do Chick Strand? I mean, do we want to see her film now? Do we want to do a separate episode? Um, well, I'll tell you what. Um, I'll talk a little bit about... So Chick Strand is a filmmaker that I, I know that I was introduced to by Saul Levine, who, Saul Levine was part of a long, venerable tradition of experimental filmmakers. And for many, many years, he was uh, a major figure at Mass, Massachusetts College of Art, Mass Art. And he showed Chick Strand soft fiction, he showed other Chick Strand films. So I must have encountered Chick Strand's films for the first time not at Millennium as a 15-year-old or anthology in New York, no, at Mass Art Film Society because that's one of the things he showed, a lot of Stan Brackage. And Chick Strand is working in um, a form, a genre, genre um, that people call experimental filmmaking. That's the label that they use for it. Um, and I suppose that as a, I suppose as a category, it's helpful to the viewer that when they watch a Chick Strand movie, soft fiction, it will be very unlike watching Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and it'll be very unlike watching, I don't know, Barbenheimer or, uh, or anything else, uh, very unique. Um, more seriously though, uh, I'm gonna just show, so the film, is, is um, an hour film of vignettes of women talking about their lives and talking about their lives in a very enigmatic, intimate, but also enigmatic, mysterious way. I mean, there's one long shot of a stark naked woman in the kitchen cooking, for example. And then there's opera and there's, there's sounds. And then there's actually a... Uh, there's an aria that's performed from Death and the Maiden. 
Uh, there's many things in the film, but anyhow, it's about these women talking about their lives. And, you know, I can't show all the segments. I would love to. I mean, it's very accessible to see soft fiction. It's on YouTube, actually. I'm sure going to show the Criterion channel version. And I thought, hmm, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to show how she opens her film. And this is from 1979. It could have been made in 1969. It could have been made in 2009. At least some of it. There's some 70s things in the style, stylings of the people and aesthetics. But I thought, because, you know, the sound and the texture. So her film is about these women, but it's also about things like um, visual design and texture and emotions and psychology and memory. And I think it was best expressed by her when she was asked to describe the film. She said, this film is an exorcism. Literally, like an exor like in The Exorcist. So that's how she describes her film. And so I thought, you know, we might as well. Here is the Criterion Channel and all its glory. Um, and do we have, do we have soft fiction? Yes, good. Unfortunately, it's at the, towards the end. I do not want to, it's because I was trying to. So let's, uh, oh, don't do this to me. I'm just going to do start over. Hopefully that'll. More, more, be aware of 
move your body. Take it up gently in both hands, wherever it feels good. First one way, then the other way. Gathering, lifting, squeezing, and releasing. Relax, just so it feels good. Feel the lingering sensations. Gently. The other side. Nod your head up and down as if to say yes. From side to side to say no. With a feather soft touch, with delicate fingers, be aware of the feelings in the palms of your hands. Let your mind come to rest. Deep within you, you may be there now. Enjoy the stillness. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Watch and follow the screen.
Pasadena Museum one day, went into that big room in the, you know, way in the back against one wall, just as you walk in and opposite the big entrance is a, uh, I don't know what you would call it, it's a, a railing or a banister. And it's made of uh, several metals like copper and brass and some that I, as I recall, have a, a silver rather than a gold color to them. And it's something like, it's hard to explain what it is. It's very, very long. And the, the metal of, of this long railing was curved sometimes in long, slow S-shaped curves. And then sometimes curves that turned round in on themselves several times and were very more tightly curved and it, and it had an outward flow and a self-contained circular flow to it. And the colors were very rich. The metal colors were very rich and very warm. And I had a kind of a warm feeling come over me. And I realized that I had this wave of desire going through my body to become this railing, to become this piece. And I could just, I could just feel my, my, cells or my musculature or something give off a kind of a warmth in their desire to become that shape, to become that thing and to, to exist with those curves and that, and that shape and that presence in the world and, and be that I could, I could feel that desire move along my, uh, I don't know, in my, in my, uh, seemed like in my, small parts of my cells or something like that. And it was very diffuse, soft warmth that went out along me. And it was like that warmth of that, of desire, you know, that you can, you can feel move out along your, your blood veins. And it makes you have the feeling that your, almost your bones are getting soft inside. to have, say, a black cat fur coat and to live inside a, or be like to move through the world in a fur.
soft friction. Um. Oh God. So. I'm going to ask a kind of rhetorical question. Um, what does it mean that a human being opened up a movie like that? There, I mean, there's a lot of, I've seen a lot of movies with tracking shots, you know. I mean, the first thing you experience is just pure sound. You don't really see anything. And it's the sound of railroad tracks, you know. And then she, in the audio underneath or alongside or mixed in with the radio track is sort of vague pop music from a radio and also the sound of screaming, if you listen very closely. And, you know, you see the kind of the motion of the train. And then it moves into this house and you then you finally see a person talking about something. Um, and that's how she opens her film. And uh, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, actually in the course of this uh, hour film, you hear some 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 things that are really um, things that the people in the film have experienced that some of them are quite terrible. Um, and then you also have things like what I just played opens the film as something more, uh, more uh, dreamlike or abstract. Um, I'm trying to remember what was the first experimental film I saw. I think it was a Michael Snow film. I think it was Presence, and I think, or maybe Wavelength, one of those two. And I know it was in the '70s. Um, and there's a sense in which Chick Strand is influenced by that milieu. I mean, she was part of the Filmmakers Cooperative and Canyon Cinema and, and, and all that. And yet, I would say she's totally unique. And I would say that I've never seen, I've seen, I've seen thousands of movies. I've never seen a film with an opening that, um, like that. I've never seen a film like, like this film. Actually, the three films I've talked about today, all three of them are totally unique. Um, I, I, I just, you know, and, and it's exciting to think the human beings did something, did things like these objects that were made. Um, it's remarkable. I think it's remarkable. And maybe I try to share that enthusiasm and say, well, it's really something. And that's all I have to say about it now. Um, I don't know what's happening next. I know that next week uh, there's an episode with Michael Berent and it's a book book lunch. And we discuss the history of religion. <laughs> Small topic. Um, I'm really excited about that episode. And there's many other things coming up. I couldn't, I couldn't uh, keep track of them all today, but um, it is the weekend is Friday. So I'm wishing you a safe, healthy weekend um, and maybe during the weekend you could see or experience a film like one of these films, maybe if you're lucky. Uh, and uh, I enjoy digging into these, these, um, these films and I, and I, I, I beg your, 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 um, 
pardon that, I mean, uh, apologies that I, I can't always um, discuss them exactly in the, in the way I, it's most ideal because I have to dig into them and I have to, you know, as we used to say, fast forward and rewind through shots and the way the chapters are set up, I did my best. And I, um, and, uh, you know, I think the spirit is there and that's what's important. And we're longer than 90 minutes. And so I hope this, uh, this episode has been edifying and enlightening in some small measure. And uh, I will see you soon. Thank you.